Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek. And today I'm speaking to Varun Sivaram, the author of Taming the Sun, Innovations to Harness Solar Energy and Power the Planet. Varun Sivaram is the Philip D. Reed Fellow for Science and Technology at the Council on Foreign Relations. He teaches clean energy innovation at Georgetown University, is a fellow at Columbia University's Center for Global Energy Policy, and serves on Stanford University's Energy and Environment Boards. He has advised both the mayor of Los Angeles and the governor of New York on energy, and was formerly consulted at McKinsey & Company. He holds a PhD in condensed matter physics from Oxford University, where he was a Rhodes Scholar. PV Magazine called him the Hamilton of the solar industry. Forbes named him one of its 30 under 30, and Grist selected him as one of the top 50 leaders in sustainability. Varun Sivaram, thanks so much for being on the MIT Pod- Press Podcast today. Chris, thanks so much for having me. Now, your book, Taming the Sun, Innovation to Harness Solar Energy and Power the Planet, looks at the challenges that need to be overcome to allow solar energy to meet the expectations of both political and business leaders in the next 50 years. One overarching theme I got from the book is that there tends to be, particularly on the political side, a sort of wishful thinking about what solar power will mean in the next 50 years. And by wishful thinking, I mean assumptions about growth without considerations of the context that growth has to happen in. Would you say that's an accurate reading of one of the parts of your book? Yeah, I would. In fact, I'd say that there's wishful thinking on both the political and the business sides when it comes to looking at solar's future. Look, one of the best business side forecasters we've got, Bloomberg New Energy Finance, forecasts this kind of hockey stick-like trajectory for solar's growth over the next couple decades. Now, that's kind of reasonable given where solar's come from recently. You know, just in the last decade, solar's fallen in cost by over 90%, and it's risen sharply. It used to be 0% of the world's electricity supply, and now it's already at 2%. It doesn't sound like a lot, but solar has actually come leaps and bounds just in the last decade. And so if you extrapolate this growth, that's where you end up having what I think you and I would both agree is wishful thinking, where you think that solar will continue to do more of the same, continue to grow from its current 2% level to 10%, 20%, even 30%. And in my book, Taming the Sun, I argue that 33% is the target we should be aiming for by the middle of the century, 2050, because if solar achieves that mark, it'll be well on its way to anchoring a clean energy transition. And that's really going to be necessary uh, to avert catastrophic climate change. The problem is what happens between now and then. You know, if you just extrapolate what happens with solar's growth, you'll fail to see some of the barriers that intercede between today and that mid-century mark. For example, solar could fail to get enough financing. Uh, Its existing investment sources won't cover the trillions of dollars it needs. And solar could also be considerably less valuable the more of it you put on a grid. So as you go from 2 to 10 to 20%, solar could very quickly start to undercut itself in a way that it's never experienced before. And so you wouldn't have predicted that that wall would get hit, and yet it will. Now, that's all from the business side. From the political side, I also think there's some wishful thinking. There's the wishful thinking that the sorts of policies that have worked to get solar where it is today, from 0 to 2%, are the same sorts of policies we're going to need for it to get from 2 to 33%. I think that's a fallacy. I think that the sorts of policies that have worked to date, direct subsidies and incentives and mandates for solar, are far too expensive if what you want is solar to become a mainstream energy contender in 
displace fossil fuels in a big way. At those kinds of scales, governments can't afford to directly subsidize solar. They're going to have to be much more uh, innovative and indirect in their incentives. They're going to have to make it so that the free market picks uh, solar power and that solar power competes on a level playing field with other energy sources, be they fossil or clean. And in order to accomplish that, a whole new suite of policies is going to be needed. So anyway, to, to sum up my answer to your question, yes, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of wishful thinking uh, when you think about extrapolating solar's growth from where it's come to where it needs to go. And I wrote my book in order to head off that wishful thinking and to offer concrete policy prescriptions for how we might continue solar's red-hot growth trajectory. You know, I think one of the most amazing things out of that answer is on the business side, I mean, you think the whole idea of the law of diminishing marginal returns is pretty much, you know, that's, that's pretty standard as far as macroeconomic theory goes. But anybody that extrapolates that kind of hockey stick curve obviously might not be thinking that, yeah, that next unit, as you keep going on, isn't going to be worth as much as the units before. And so what's the purpose of adding more units to it? So I, I found that kind of an interesting answer. I completely agree with you. I will say, though, that the law of diminishing marginal returns is sort of uh, a general economic phenomenon, but its incidence is particularly pronounced when it comes to solar power. That, you know, if you have a lot of gas plants, gas power plants, uh, the next gas power plant is, you know, necessarily going to be less valuable than the last one because you're starting to oversupply the electricity market. But that diminishing marginal return is kind of gentle. When it comes to solar, the diminishing marginal return is severe. And the reason for that is that all solar plants put out power at exactly the same time. So whereas you can ramp up and down a gas plant and shift its power output to different parts of the day, when it comes to solar, the next solar panel just puts out power in the middle of the day at lunchtime. And so you quickly start to have an oversupply in the market right at the same time in the day. And the value of that marginal solar panel declines very rapidly. So, so that's kind of a peculiar to solar phenomenon. Uh, and as a result, diminishing marginal returns tend to erode your value much faster in this technology than in others. Now, the explosive growth you talked about in the first answer that people have seen in solar, really probably, I want to say the last 15, the last 20 years, obviously, a lot of that has been pushes by governments to decarbonize the economy. But also, the cost of solar panels have gone down. Uh, you know, there's been discussion here in the United States about is China dumping solar panels on our market. Is it fair to say that the drop in costs of solar panels that people have been reading about is do more to wringing the cost out of the production line than necessarily the improvements in technological innovations of it. I mean, more so that I guess that a lot of that drop in value is, or the drop in cost is due to production, not necessarily technological innovation. Is that true? And if so, are we kind of getting to the end of that period where we more or less have wrung as much out of the value chain as we can as far as cost? The next step is going to have to be technology. It's a wonderful point you bring up. I would agree with you that recently, for example, in the last decade, most of the cost improvements have come from wringing costs out of production lines compared with uh, you know, fundamental technology improvements. Now, that hasn't always been the case. And this shift in what's driving cost improvements can sometimes be masked by what looks like a regularity in cost declines. So ever since the 1970s, or even further before that, um, the cost of solar power has fallen regularly based on how much solar has been produced. Every time you double the cumulative production of solar panels around the world, the cost of a solar panel falls by on the order of 20% or a little more. Well, that regular decline 
is actually the function of very different driving forces depending on where you are in history. So in the early decades, say in the 70s and 80s and 90s, uh, you had cost declines as a result of fundamental technology improvements. You know, we were making these silicon solar panels and cells much better. Their efficiency was improving by leaps and bounds. Uh, that tended to drive down the cost of solar panels because you were therefore able uh, to produce more electricity with a limited amount of expensive material. Um, and uh, the products that you were churning out of your production lines tended to be uh, superior to the ones that came out the previous year. Now, in more recent years, you know, especially over the last decade, the mechanism of cost decline has changed, as you mentioned. It's more about bringing costs out of the production line. It's also about improving, for example, factory yields. It's also about making factories really, really big because then you get economies of scale. So you combine these scale and learning effects and those have dominated uh, the drivers of cost declines more recently. Now, your final question was, are we gonna run out of these opportunities to continue to reduce costs? And frankly, looking ahead, I don't see those cost declines stopping. I don't see that regularity. Every time you double production, your cost falls by 20 or more percent. Uh, I don't see that stopping in the very near future. Um, that's not the cause for my concern, though I still am concerned. I'm concerned because I don't think the cost of solar is going to fall fast enough you know, as we achieve these enormous uh, scales of production. Every year now, we're installing on the order of 100 gigawatts uh, of solar power. Um, and so, you know, the cost of solar will continue to decline, but there's not uh, that much more that we can do with silicon solar panels compared with what the next technology generation could do to revolutionize the economics of solar. So I'm concerned that technological stagnation has set into solar, and it's not that I'm concerned that the gently declining cost uh, will stop gently declining. I just want it to fall much more steeply. And I think new technologies can enable us to do that as well as offer brand new applications. You know, you could see far more versatile technologies that instead of today's heavy and rigid and bulky panels could be coatings that are lightweight and flexible and able to be used in a whole host of new applications that today's panels can't. So let's talk about one of my favorite chapters in the book. And there's a lot in this book that I really like. And I like this chapter a lot because one of the best parts of the book for me was you were explaining how individuals are going out there and using solar to address their needs. You know, you, everybody probably that's in North America kind of has that visualization on the consumer side of, you know, putting the solar panels up on your roof and that kind of thing. But the chapter where you talked about how off-grid solar is developing in sub-Saharan Africa and India, I thought was fascinating. Now, these are two areas in which energy has been a huge issue, and getting energy to the consumer has been almost impossible. That's why they're off-grid. Could you talk about how these two places developed or approach uh, off-grid solar? Because they have approached it in very different, ma different ways. Absolutely. So just by way of context, um, over a billion people around the world mostly concentrated in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, lack access to any electricity. Around another billion lack access to reliable electricity. So energy access is a real you know, problem uh, that faces the world today. Um, and, and in these two regions, sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, uh, we have seen you know, a range of different approaches. So I'll pick out two particular regions, East Africa versus India. Um, in East Africa, we saw kind of a wild, wild west approach 
um, where there was largely this laissez-faire approach taken by governments. They didn't really do very much of anything. Uh, and that gave uh, entrepreneurs and startups the space needed to come in and develop these innovative business models, take advantage of the falling costs of hardware, from the falling costs of solar panels to batteries to energy-efficient appliances, and then deploy them to bring electricity for the first time to many of these rural villages. Um, so, so the product that they developed, you know, a solar home system, was able to provide cell phone charging, uh, LED lights, even a television, with very little money down for a villager. And the villager just paid using mobile money. These entrepreneurs had harnessed another trend, the rise of mobile money in countries like Kenya, for which you can pay for almost anything. And so at the end of the road, after, you know, 36 months or 48 months, a villager is then able to entirely pay off uh, a solar home system and then have a valuable asset to his or her name and ultimately raise credit with that asset. So there's this economic transformation happening and solar's right in the middle of it. And a lot of that, frankly, is because governments didn't do anything. And that turned out to be a good thing. Now, in in the case of India, India is the polar opposite when it comes to government regulation. India is overregulated, extraordinarily regulated. Um, and, and that tends to be stifling uh, for investment. This is true for many different sectors of the economy, and it's certainly true for energy. Um, in the case of energy, until very recently, uh, the use of these mobile banking networks uh, was prohibited. You couldn't uh, transact over a cell phone network as easily as you could uh, in East Africa because of uh, strict telecommunications and banking regulations. However, most recently, uh, these regulations have been altered uh, and mobile banking ideally is going to take off in India. And we could see a repeat uh, of some of the successes uh, in East Africa. So so I think ultimately, um, you know, even today's existing silicon solar panels offer great potential for off-grid applications to bring energy access to uh, countries where the infrastructure has lagged where the central grid, for example, uh, hasn't been able to serve the number of people that it should. Now, I still believe that extending the central grid is the primary way of uh, combating energy poverty. But a secondary way has emerged as off-grid solar systems. And I think that's you know, a hugely important mechanism. And frankly, the best way for governments to enable these entrepreneurs to go ahead and uh, deploy their solutions is to get out of the way. Now, how does that fit into how international capital is looking at solar? Are, is there a sense that the, the really big money in capital development might be a little scared about solar because they're not sure if it's a sustainable industry once governments start subsidizing it? Is it that there are no easy mechanisms for international capital to get involved? You talk about some of the big players like uh, pension funds and sovereign wealth funds might not necessarily be getting into this area, and they really need to start focusing energy, focusing capital in this area in order to meet the goal you set out for 2050. So what have been some of the barriers and in your view, possibly some of the solutions to get more capital flowing into solar projects? That's a great question. I think that in order to meet the you know, mid-century targets, solar is going to need trillions of dollars and its existing investment sources, frankly, aren't prepared uh, to provide that kind of capital. Now, you mentioned, you know, two possible reasons for why institutional investors, the world's most deep pocketed investors, uh, might be hesitant about funding solar. You suggested, you know, they might worry that with the disappearance of public subsidies, uh, solar might not be sustainable. Uh, no pun intended. Of course, solar is sustainable. And uh, you also suggested that, uh, 
you know, the, these large institutional investors might not have the right mechanism to invest in uh, uh, solar projects. I personally think that the reason that institutional investors have so far sat on the sidelines is largely the latter and not the former. You know, solar projects are going to continue to be relatively safe investment bets, even as government subsidies uh, phase out. The reason for that is, you know, a solar project is a dead easy uh, mechanical installation. It literally just sits there with no moving parts and produces power for the next 30 years. And if you have a contract signed with a utility or another energy offtaker, you can reliably produce revenue for decades to come. So that's a really simple, you know, high yield, long term investment that an institutional investor like a pension fund or a sovereign wealth fund, you know, would love to have in their portfolio. The problem, I argue, is that they're often uh, not great ways for these institutional investors to reach into their deep pockets and plow a lot of capital uh, into these projects. The reason is these investors don't have uh, the resources at their disposal to do due diligence on individual solar projects. Even large solar projects uh, can take a, a whole lot of time to make sure that you know such a project is a good investment bet. Moreover, once you invest in a project, it can be hard to move your money around. You know, these investors are used to having liquid investments. They invest in stocks and bonds. Those stocks and bonds are easily tradable and they're easily assembled into a diversified portfolio. So in order for solar to attract the kind of investment that it needs, these investors are going to need to be able to assemble diversified portfolio of highly liquid solar assets. And the way to do that is for the solar industry to learn from other industries that are quite good at attracting institutional investment. You know, the oil and gas industry is able to bundle together its pipelines into a vehicle that it lists on the stock market, and then folks can buy and trade uh, those securities. Similarly, the auto and mortgage industries are able to securitize auto loans and mortgages uh, so that institutional investors can buy and trade them on public exchanges. So the, these are ways that the solar industry can go ahead and, and make its investments more palatable to these institutional folks. And I think they're well on their way to doing that. I, I actually am not particularly worried that this funding speed bump is going to pose much of a challenge, even though today's investors are not equipped to produce the trillions of dollars of capital solar needs to keep growing. You know, finally, one of the most interesting parts of this book for me was when I was thinking about the market of this, I think, well, are there current players within the market who might be pushing back against solar? You point out in your book that actually some of the major energy companies in the world are also some of the biggest solar developers. There's some big oil companies you talk about who have developed solar energy projects that are quite quite astonishing. But when I was thinking more about it, how are public utilities in the future going to be dealing with solar? Do you see there could be pushback from them? Because I know in some situations, there have been uh, public utilities who have lobbied against solar simply because in situations it almost it's it drives up their cost and, and moves people who are on solar off the grid, therefore making it a, a worse business proposition for them. So do you see there's still established players who even as obviously the business case for this to happen moves forward, could start be putting roadblocks in the way because they see that their goose is getting their, their ox is getting gored as a, in order to make solar happen? You know, when you ask that question, I think it's important to introduce two distinctions when we talk about utilities and we talk about solar. Utilities are not some homogeneous group. There are actually two distinct types of, oh, there are many distinct types of power companies, but I'll, I'll focus on two of them. 
One type is what's known as a regulated public utility, and these are the folks uh, who state regulators have given a mandate to operate the distribution grid and deliver electricity to customers. And then there are unregulated utilities, and these folks are able to uh, you know, develop uh, power generation projects across the country or around the world. The first category, the regulated utilities, those are the ones we tend to hear in the news talking about solar. And here we've got to introduce that second distinction about solar. You know, there, there are two kinds of solar projects. There are centralized ones and there are decentralized ones. There's actually a whole spectrum from very, very decentralized ones on rooftops to very, very centralized ones that are, you know, enormous and out in the desert. And it's the ones that are on the rooftops that uh, the regulated public utilities tend to have the biggest problem with. Those installations, as you correctly mentioned, can often shift costs from those who don't have solar to those who do have solar. It's somewhat ironic that, you know, if you are a wealthy, uh, you know, Northern California resident and you install solar on your roof and the utility gives you this very preferential uh, rate of compensation for your electricity that you ship to the grid, you effectively end up shifting your burden for paying for the grid that you still use at night when your panels aren't working. You shift that burden over to someone who doesn't have solar uh, and oftentimes those people will tend to be of a lower socioeconomic class than you are. So that's, you know, that's unfortunate. And I think utilities are right to uh, sound alarm bells that we haven't figured out the right compensation structure in many cases uh, for decentralized solar installations. That said, I think your regulated public utilities tend to support large centralized solar installations and even relatively centralized distributed installations, you know, ones that are on Walmart rooftops or ones that are large enough to power hundreds or thousands of homes, but are pretty close to where they're used. Um, utilities tend to believe that those uh, larger solar installations reduce the cost of power, and that's good for their customers. It's good for the utilities, too, because they're regulated by state regulators who want them to keep costs down. Um, and I think that the unregulated utilities are very happy about solar because they're some of the leading developers of solar. You know, it's power companies like Nextera in the United States, Enel in Italy, you know, folks, China Light and Power uh, in Asia. These guys are all, you know, owners of traditional fossil fuel assets that are now branching out into uh, non-fossil fuel assets, primarily solar and wind in some cases. And that's, you know, th the emergence of this new asset class is enabling them to make money, especially in a world where governments want to see decarbonized energy. And it helps that solar is you know, so cheap already. So all of this suggests, in my opinion, that the energy super majors of solar are going to be, you know, some of the folks who have traditionally played in the fossil uh, game, some of these energy incumbents, uh, like these unregulated utilities. Um, I think they could be the ones that really push solar forward. Uh, and it's important uh, to, to include them in conversations of the future of solar. Varun Sivaram, the author of Taming the Sun, Innovation to Harness Solar Energy and Power the Planet. Thanks for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. Chris, it was great to be on. Thanks for having me. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget, you can find the MIT Press on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2018. The MIT Press. All rights reserved.